This is David. Dave Weigel. Yes. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. I can hear you. Dave Weigel works at the Washington Post, covers politics. At this point in the election cycle, he's in constant motion. One moment he's in Iowa, the next Detroit. Where are you right now on Earth? I'm in a hotel lobby. I'm, I'm scrambling on stories today. Dave says he wants to know what people who are not constantly on Twitter are thinking about. And he can't do that from D.C. Uh, and one thing it has done for me is I, I, I end up sounding more cynical than a lot of people in D.C. Because I, I kind of shrug and say, I bet this doesn't matter. And it's not because I don't think it matters. It's because after a, a couple of days of interviews in Iowa and New Hampshire, I find out, boy, people really weren't reacting to that thing that just happened. The thing that's happening right now in Washington is this triangular schism. First between the Democrats, who are trying to figure out just how progressive they are, and then between both political parties, as Donald Trump twists this Democratic rift to fit his own purposes, calling lawmakers of color socialists or anti-Semitic. Dave hears all this, and he can't help but wonder, does anyone outside of the Beltway care? Representative... Ilhan Omar. Which is what he was thinking about when he saw that Trump rally in North Carolina a couple weeks ago. This is the one where the crowd started chanting, send her back. Did you go down after that rally? Did you see the rally and think like, oh, I should go down there? I was thinking of going down for a while. Dave wanted to go to North Carolina because if the Democrats want to win the presidential race... Their path to victory lies in places like this. And right now, just a few miles from where the president spoke, there's a congressional race going on. It's the kind of election Dave thinks could be a test case for how the rest of the country sees all the mudslinging in Washington. So I've been looking at this race. It is really the only competitive congressional race in the country until 2020. Uh, So I was going to go down at some point, and then the Trump rally... I think, put a little gas in the tank that made it clear that it was a good moment to write about it. Today on the show, a congressional race where Washington talking points are being sharpened and rendered in miniature. And this race, it's just a month away. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You might be wondering why we're talking about a congressional race at all. The midterms happened last year. The Democrats retook the House. But in North Carolina's 9th district, the midterms never really ended. Major developments today in North Carolina that could impact the future of a congressional seat there. A three-judge That's because instead of declaring a winner, North Carolina declared it had been a victim of election fraud. When the votes were counted, the Republican candidate, a guy named Mark Harris, it looked like he had won votes he shouldn't or couldn't have. So the board refused to certify the results, 
eventually they called for a new election. And when Mark Harris announced he wasn't going to run, a new Republican candidate took his place. And the race started all over again. So we've got the September 10th election coming up. And just to make it extra confusing, there are two Dans running. (laughs) You have Dan Bishop, who's the Republican candidate, and you have Dan McCready, who's the Democrat. Can you just start out by telling me a little bit about who Dan Bishop is? He's the new guy to this race because Mark Harris is out. Yeah. Dan Bishop is a state senator from the, the Charlotte area. He is most famous for passing what turned out to be a political debacle, HB2, this bill that removed the power of cities in North Carolina to do several things. Among them were, you know, raising their own minimum wage and having gender neutral bathrooms. Yeah, most people know this as the bathroom bill. The bathroom bill is the way the way it's mostly discussed. And this was toxic. I mean, the new Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, is governor in large part because voters looked at the effects of this bill. They looked at you know, the NCAA skipping Charlotte. They looked at business threatening to leave over an anti-trans regulation. And they said, OK, this is bad for us. So there was political punishment for a number of Republicans who were behind this. And Bishop does not talk about it on the trail, I should say, at the uh, the meet and greet I attended, the pastor introducing him talked about it. Bishop says voters don't ask about it anymore. So Bishop has reintroduced himself as a reluctant politician, you know, a guy who made it in the private sector and became a senator. This is kind of the model in North Carolina who wants to fight the clowns in Washington. I mean, he has a TV ad where he's walking around, uh, you know, those rubber clowns that you punch and they bounce back up. Uh, <laughs> With the faces of Dan McCready, Nancy Pelosi, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, he basically is running as the sensible conservative who's going to vote with the president, uh, who's going to defend the president from the crazy liberals, which is a mix of issues that was not quite there in 2018. Yeah, it's interesting to me to look at the ads that Dan Bishop is putting out there because it's the new Republican talking points. You know, he's like, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-gun, and I'm pro-wall. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is the first congressional campaign that has implemented this Republican message of you need us in power to stop the socialists who are taking over the Democratic Party. It's pretty explicit in this race. I mean, Bishop has literature that's handed out events, it's mailed to people, and it's a you know, compare and contrast guide that basically links the creedy to the, the, quote, socialist Democrats in Washington and points out that Bishop stands with President Trump. I'm Dan Bishop. There are two Dans in this election. I'm the right Dan. He's the wrong Dan. I'm conservative Dan. Pro-life, pro-gun, pro-wall. The Dan who stands Dan Bishop likes to say, I'm the right Dan, and the other guy's yes. the wrong Dan. So <laughs> I guess we should talk about the other Dan. So Dan McCready, the Democrat, he's a mar- former Marine. He was a solar energy investor. And he doesn't want to talk about the issues that Dan Bishop is talking about at all, it seems like. He doesn't. So he has a very well laid out agenda for a House candidate. Uh, McCready, having run for more than two years, has pretty well spelled out priorities on health care, on education, on energy, on foreign policy. And his style of campaigning is to go around the districts. Um, I mean, because Democrats are still active and they're so well organized, they they get decent crowds. And he has town halls. He has online town halls. McCready's campaign is oriented around saying, here specifically is what you get from Congressman Dan McCready. It is going to be different than what you get from other Democrats you may have heard of. I'm not like them. 
he's not trying to bash them, but he's he's differentiating himself, which is something that worked very well in the midterms for a lot of Democrats. As a Marine, you don't back down from fighting for what's right. Same's true building a business and raising kids. North Carolinians fight every day for their families. So you deserve to know what I'll fight for in Congress. I'll work with Democrats and Republicans to make health care affordable. That's why I support bipartisan plans to lower prescription drug prices. I'll work across the aisle to cut taxes for the middle class and strengthen our public schools. I mean, he makes a big deal about the fact that he's going to work with Democrats and Republicans. And he's talking about valuing country over party. You know, in the past, Dan McCready, the Democrat, has said he won't work with Nancy Pelosi as speaker. He's been opposed to impeachment. Does he say where he stands on those things now? He still doesn't want Pelosi as speaker, but it's kind of a moot point. And that's the one advantage I think <laughs> McCready has by running in a special because she's the speaker. No, that's over. On impeachment, he says he's one of these Democrats who says clearly the president's done a lot of things I disagree with uh, that the law probably disagrees with. But do we really want in a, to pour the country into this gigantic distraction for the rest of his presidency or you know the rest of his term? Uh, that's where he's at on those. And he's very clear. I mean, uh, when I first interviewed McCready, it was early 2018. I was doing one of what ended up being a lot of stories about Democrats recruiting candidates in the suburbs. And he was much harder to pin down than a lot of first-time candidates. He's, he was adroit in a way that could that if you didn't like him, you could call slippery. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I had certain questions I would ask to, to say, okay, Medicare for all. Here's the question. Here's two follow-ups. I wanted to see where you're at. And he he came away. He was very clear that he's not for Medicare for all. But the, what Bishop tried to exploit is that, well, he's less clear than the leftists. Um, he has a, some bunch of bullet points. What does he really stand for? Hmm. There's this one moment that sort of summed up how difficult this balancing act is going to be for Dan McCready, the Democrat. Because he got a campaign contribution from Ilhan Omar, and then he had to decide what to do about it. Can, can you tell me what happened there? Yeah, so McCready is, was in 2018, uh, and especially after this contested election, was one of the big national causes for Democrats. I mean, it was infamous that what happened in North Carolina. He, on the stump, refers to it as the biggest election fraud case in modern history. Uh, probably not wrong. I can't think of one that's bigger than that. So he was getting a lot of money, including from his future, if he wins, colleagues in Congress, millions of dollars. Among them were donations from Ilhan Omar, who's doing what a lot of people do in Congress, is building a network of supporters by, by giving them $1,000. It's kind hmm. of it's actually pretty common for people who have ambitions inside the party. So he took the money. It was not a big deal until she had kind of this one-two punch of controversies. Uh, first, you know, she tweeted about uh, how support for Israel and Congress is all about the Benjamins. And then she made comments about how she rejected the premise that members of Congress should have allegiance to a foreign country. A number of Democrats added to Republicans and saying, you can't talk like this. This is anti-Semitism. She backed down from part of it. She apologized for part of it. Really, she changed for quite a while the way she talked. But the Bishop campaign pointed out in the FEC reports she had donated to Dan McCready. So McCready said he disagreed with the way Omar spoke, just as he disagreed with the way that Donald Trump spoke. And he gave the money back. This is kind of a fascinating situation. It's not one that McCready loves to talk about. It's fascinating because there hasn't been a backlash. There haven't been Democratic voters turning around and ceasing to help him out on the campaign trail. It was one of the ultimate tests of how much these Democrats can get away with because their base is so ready for them to just win. I think it overall was a 
a problem for McCready. It probably did cost more votes than it got the way he handled it. But it's a good example of how it became harder after the 2018 election to be a fully independent, I'm not like those other people, Democrat. Hmm. Can you talk to me about the voters you met? Yeah. What, like, what are they thinking about this race? Well, I met voters who were already inclined to vote for one of these candidates. And the Republicans were indeed worried that within a generation or, or sooner, we could lose America to socialism, which is, as somebody who's been doing this beat for about 13, 14 years, I've heard that for a, a long time. I heard that <laughs> under Barack Obama. I heard it in 2016. I'm still hearing it, but I do think the increased notoriety of Ilhan Omar and Ocasio-Cortez enhanced that. I wonder if it's fair to use such a conservative district as a barometer for how the political winds are shifting or whether we should. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a fair question. I don't think I, that's what I was there to do. I, I was more interested in how people in a conservative district think that this debate is affecting them. Democrats have won the presidency twice in this century, almost won it twice more in terms of they won the popular vote without Missouri, without even coming close to winning Missouri a couple of times. There are people in states that are deeply red where, yes, indeed, these politics don't work. You kind of have to triage. And Republicans, um, this is not something you hear a lot of Democrats who work in politics say, more Democrats who write about politics say, look, Republicans do triage all the time. They love to make fun of the effete liberal coasts. They make fun of New York. They make fun of Boston. They call Baltimore uh, rat-infested because they say those people are never going to vote for us, whereas Democrats uh, wring their hands about what they might say that, that might lose the person who never was going to vote for them. If you want to win statewide in Missouri, or if you want to win a plus 13 district, you might be a Democrat who agrees with the party on 80% of this stuff. And yeah, you're legit worried that this is going to make it impossible for you to win. You said you went to North Carolina to try to figure out how these big conversations about the squad and about immigration these things were impacting voters in places that weren't Washington. So I'm wondering what you concluded. I concluded that Republican voters immediately have information about what the Trump administration thinks, what the president thinks, what Fox News says is important, immediately beamed into their brains and it is right at the front of what they're thinking and doing. Democrats don't quite have that, certainly not in conservative areas. They're, but they are very aware that there are voters that they would love to win over who are getting told uh, about Democrats all the time and they're perpetually nervous about how to win them back. So you're in Detroit right now at the debates, right? Mm -hmm. And we were talking on Wednesday morning. So we've just seen the first set of debates. And it was really this kind of fight over the soul of the Democratic Party, or at least it felt like that from my TV screen in New York City. You know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren were, you know, making the case for big changes in D.C., especially when it comes to health care. I mean, I just wonder what you think it would be like to watch that debate in North Carolina 9? It's a good question because people do segment out their local candidates and the national candidates. If Dan McCready was on the ballot with the nominee, let's say it's, it's Bernie Sanders, he'd be in the position of saying, I disagree with Bernie Sanders on many of these positions. But honestly, some of the, the most compelling lines at the debate came from Pete Buttigieg, who, and he's been saying this on the trail, said, look, if we run as on far-left policies, they're going to call us socialists. If we run on conservative policies, they're going to call us socialists. 
to me, it sounded like a kind of letting go of the fear over the politics. And I just wonder if that message you think would resonate in North Carolina 9. I think in that district, it would resonate. Around the country, it's very different. I mean, I was talking last night to two different Michigan Democrats. Uh, One of them is Alyssa Slotkin, who won a seat that Donald Trump won pretty comfortably. And she flat out worried that if people run on big structural change, that's not what Michigan wants and they would lose. Then I talked to Andy Levin, who's endorsed Elizabeth Warren, and he said, look, I endorsed Hillary Clinton last time and she didn't excite anybody. The idea that we need the centrist establishment candidate to just get over the line, we tried it, we lost, so we're trying something else now. And uh, Michigan is a 50-50 place, North Carolina is a, is a Trump place. So I think the debate about who would turn people out in a presidential election is different. I'm sure there are people in the, let's say in the Charlotte suburbs, who were, think Dan McCready is the best person to win a plus 13 district, but... Elizabeth Warren might be the best person to win a plus two Trump state uh, to go in there and and fire up people in Charlotte and Fayetteville and Chapel Hill and Asheville who just weren't that excited to vote for Hillary Clinton. There there are two debates kind of you know banging around at the same time, and there's a little bit of overlap, but there's a lot of confusion, which <laughs> is usually what happens with Democrats. So if if one Dan or another wins in this next election, how will it change how you think about 2020? Well, I guess there's let's, a couple scenarios. If McCready wins by any margin whatsoever... Uh, That's the Democrat. Yeah, sorry. If, 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 if the wrong Dan, <laughs> if the Democrat <laughs> wins by any margin whatsoever, it is going to cause Republicans some panic because they would have spent nine months attacking socialism, attacking the squad, attacking health care for quote-unquote illegals, etc., and they would have lost because a Democrat ran a different campaign. If the Republican wins narrowly, I think there's less worry among Republicans, but it, it does suggest that the Trump messaging has not really moved the numbers from where they were in 2018, which would be bad for him. And if it's a gigantic bishop margin, like a 10-point bishop win, I think it would be really hard to avoid the conclusion that the Trump refocusing on culture war issues, on socialism, on all this clicked with people who just a few months earlier were ready to vote for a Democrat. Dave Weigel, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Dave Weigel is a national reporter covering politics for The Washington Post. And that is the show. Today's episode was hosted by me, I'm Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. Super special thanks to Katya Kumkova. Before you put down your phone, turn this podcast off, I've got a recommendation. Go over to The Gist. It's hosted by my friend Mike Pesca. Today, his guest is Chuck Klosterman. They're going to be talking about his new book of short stories. All right. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.